Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art in South River, Ontario, Canada. Last weekend, Wave Farm featured Don Chorus recordings from around the world as part of Sound Camp. NASA in South River also participated in SoundCamp with a 24-hour broadcast of the soundscape from Warbler's Roost, a rural property 22 kilometers west of South River. NASA also played host that weekend to researchers Matthew Rogalski and Laura Cameron from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. They gave a lecture and a performance discussing the work of W.H. Gunn, a pioneer sound recordist from the 1950s and 60s, who recorded soundscapes in Algonquin Park, which is a provincial park that has an access point 22 kilometers east of South River. Gunn published those recordings as a form of advocacy and education, and the ones included in this lecture were originally published under the title A Day in the Life of Algonquin Park. Here is Matthew Rogalski and Laura Cameron on the work of W.H. Gunn. So um, I'll begin by introducing Laura. You've already met her, of course, but uh, Laura has a, a, academically has a background as a historian, a couple of degrees in history before uh, turning to geography as a discipline. And uh, she was invited to join the ranks of historical geographers. And that's one of her identities now, is as a historical geographer or environmental historian, um, and she does teach at Queen's in the Department of uh, Geography and Planning. And we've been partners in life and also collaborating on various projects along the way for a long, long time. It's now, what, 30, 30 years? 30, more than 30. It's like okay. 32 or 33 this year. Okay, and for much of that time, Matt has been a composer and a sound artist. And for the last over 10 years, 12 years, he's been. Uh, teaching at Queen's University in the Dan School of Drama and Music. Who is William Gunn? Well, uh, William Walter Hamilton Gunn is remembered uh, and widely uh, known and respected as an ecologist, scientist, environmental consultant, wildlife recordist, and his interest in recording started in the 1950s, basically as, as soon as he could get his hands on a, uh, a good quality recorder. This is our very formal sounding title for this talk, The Sonic Natures of Bill Gunn, Early Soundscape Composition and the Construction of Canadian Identities. So, uh, but here's another picture of the charismatic William Gunn, uh, pictured with uh, an intriguing wind-up portable reel-to-reel -reel tape machine, which he did travel with and record with in you know, places like Venezuela, and, it's obviously uh, electronic in as much as, or electric in as much as 
its magnetic uh, recording device, electromagnetic recording device, but the, 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 the spool, spooling mechanism is hand cranked. In any case, uh, Gunn was one of the first people to compile a library of environmental sounds, specifically for licensing for film and radio use. And CBC uh, said that he had one of the largest collections of bird, insect, and mammal sounds in the world. Uh, he was an ornithologist, and Cornell, which has a big ornithology department, um, refers to him still as the gold standard of their collection in the Macaulay Library of Environmental Sound, which is all online. It's a wonderful resource, and we'll actually um, play you one of his recordings from there in a minute. Um, Gunn worked for CDC for years as part of their uh, international documentary team, which produced uh, product, uh, shows for The Nature of Things. Uh, he was a consultant, an environmental consultant, uh, in many, on many different projects. Uh, let's see, what, the, the Northern Pipeline, the Mackenzie Valley, Mackenzie Valley Pipeline mm -hmm. project in the 70s. Uh, as I mentioned, when he was recording with this machine in Venezuela, but he was there as a consultant in 1959 for what was then the world's largest oil company. Um, he was a consultant on design of the CN Tower as far as you know, impact on bird migration and, um, and also uh, birds and aircraft, issues of birds and airports. Um, so I guess part of the, you know, his, the inter, you know, interesting aspect of his work as a consultant is that he set himself up uh, as an expert who could provide an independent analysis, even though he was employed by, say, an oil company, it was made clear that his, his whatever he, his report was going to be on the, on the topic was going to be uh, independent. And the company that he set up, uh, LGL uh, Limited, was, uh, that was basically their founding principle, is that, you know, that you could hire them and expect a uh, unbiased opinion. Yeah. And the company is still going strong. The company still exists, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Ken was also the author of a series of albums, uh, all under the title Sounds of Nature. <laughs> and these were very popular, uh, and they were, they were uh, produced through the, uh, what was then, um, now it's Ontario Nature, Federation. then Federation of Ontario Naturalists. And here we have a cover of the day in Algonquin Park, you can see there. You can take a look at the cover if you wish. Um, and Gunn is not, I mean, there's lots of, there's a big history of, you know, sounds of bird, bird song LPs, sounds of nature LPs. Um, but one of the claims that we make, even though Gunn was not thought of as a composer and didn't claim, didn't make the claim to be a composer, uh, we'd like to uh, think of him as being uh, deserving of that title in reference to the construction of uh, the sonic constructions he did not only for film and radio as a recordist and editor, but significantly uh, two, two albums in this uh, series, which we've dubbed circadian audio portraits or, um, you know, day-long portraits of, of a place over a day. So a day in Algonquin Park 
The other one is a day at Flores Morados, which was the Venezuelan, uh, based on the Venezuelan recordings. Uh, just to give you a taste of some early gun recording in Algonquin Park, so popping over to the Macaulay Library website. So this is a fantastic resource, and in this case, I've got one of Gunn's loon recordings. So you can see, recorded 19, June 1951, Algonquin Park at Lake Sasajawan. We've found lots of his, the recordings that went into the making of the, the Algonquin Park album just by going through, uh, you know, doing good searches through Macaulay Library's pages. LNS catalog number 43039. Gabe Immer, Gun Library Cut 4, Common Loon. This is a dub from Cuts 1 to 3. into the home for enjoyment and relaxation was novel. But Gunn's LP also was original as a nature study that could be enjoyed as a piece of music. The album sleeve explains, in this 30 minute presentation, we have woven together some of the sounds of nature that you may expect to hear in Algonquin Park in June or July. Side one is morning and afternoon, while side two is evening. In weaving his selected sounds together, Gunn's use of the day in the life structure, the circadian audio portrait that Matt mentioned, required him to make choices about what was most sonically representative of Canada's oldest provincial park, that is, to compose. So while exploring Gunn's composition decisions and the political and creative context which surrounded them, we acknowledge the ways in which the album's creation and reception play out some deeply ironic and paradoxical aspects of the wilderness myth, while inevitably feeding into the construction of a popular and idealized Canadian identity. Algonquin Park, currently part of the indigenous Algonquin land claim, was hardly pristine nature. Gunn's, quote, nature sounds, unquote, were recorded within an anthropogenic, working and contested landscape. In his making of Algonquin Park, there are significant and intentional erasures and omissions, shaped in part, we argue, by a settler colonial positionality toward practices of listening, recording, and editing. We also argue that Gunn's compositional use of the circadian audio portrait format marks him as a soundscape composer, working well before the definition of the genre.
soundscape composition as a genre really came out of the, the group of composers working as the World Soundscape Project. And in this uh, poll from uh, Barry Trex is uh, a handbook for acoustic ecology. Um, Barry Trex sets out some principles, which I think a lot of people still uh, regard as being, you know, a handy guide to some ideas of what soundscape composition is or can be. So listener recognizability of source material is maintained. Listener's knowledge of environmental and psychological context is invoked. Composer's knowledge of the environmental and psychological context influences the shape of the composition at every level. And the work enhances our understanding of the world and its influence carries over into everyday perceptual habits. So we can sort of fit Gunn's album into this framework um, to, to, to a greater or lesser extent. We're going to listen to the entire album after this talk, and we wanted just to flag some issues about critical listening at this point. I know you, you this is an audience that would do this anyway, but think about you know what you're hearing and the experience of listening to it, um, and thinking then about issues like so what's excluded here, you know, and what it, would noise be in this context. There's a, a sense of this idea that, that sound is sort of this open ear time to visual display practice somehow, that it open your ears, it leads to opening your mind. Um, but we need to acknowledge that sonic practice is also about power, and it's um, something that can work to reinforce um, geographies here of, of settler colonialism. So now we get into the geographies, and geographers like David Matlas is someone in England that we worked with on the Norfolk Broads. Anyway, David thinks a lot about um, sonic geography. This is a classic piece in geography, sonic geography in a nature region. And this idea that the sounds of a region find themselves within relations of power, which may allow for their difference, reshape their substance, move them to one side, or call for their silence. So it makes us think of where in landscape, where, how sound shapes it and forms the rules we live by. So in Kingston, um, we, we can refer to the 1783 Gunshot Treaty, which is kind of this thing that embodies this whole idea where in 1783, um, the Mississauga um, ceded their territory, um, all that land that was in earshot of the gunshot. So you get the sense of sound and territory and power and how those things can connect. Um, there's a, a First Nations scholar at Queen's called Dylan Robinson, and he's been talking a lot lately about um, settler colonial listening and uh, this idea of that, that how, the way we listen, our perceptions are culturally shaped, and that we need to think about these positions. Um, we recently had an opportunity to do a sound walk in the Nanaimo and in the territory of the Nanaimo people. And just before we started, the leader said to us, okay, I'm just going to leave this, this is an open question, but, but what does it mean to listen in unceded territory? And then we did our sound walk. And, you know, one aspect that, that seemed to um, come out of that reflection was that we became more and more aware of sound as this event of something with um, uh, a history. 
with befores and afters, and this idea of absence and exclusion, and, and this idea that we were being called to witness and, and fully experience our, our connections, our personal connections to these sound events and historically. So it just sort of widens up the whole scope spatially and temporally. There's South River. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we need to get into yeah, some of this complex history with a map, which involves Gunn's complex identity and also the complex identity of this place, Algonquin Provincial Park. It's a really very interesting place. Gunn worked as a director of the Wildlife Research Station in the early 1950s. This was the place that you can still go visit. The buildings are the same, nothing much has changed. Yes. Yes. Just off, and, but it's not signposted. There's Gunn on the right working with the young Robert Bateman, um, teaching him how to <laughs> do field work. Algonquin Park was Gunn's ground zero for his environmental recording practice. And it's important to recognize in the 1950s, the park was being logged, just as, as it is today in over three quarters of its area. It remains the only designated park in Ontario to allow industrial logging within its borders. Created in 1893, after decades of indiscriminate logging and extensive human-induced fires, the landscape that Tom Thompson would make iconic in his Algonquin Park paintings of the early 20th century had already undergone profound change. And no longer could it support caribou and other species which had thrived in the post-glacial habitat. A railway was constructed in 1896, just three years after the creation of the park, and tourism grew steadily, mostly along that railway, but later along Highway 60, which was paved in 1948. And the pavement's important to gun story, this idea of access. The park also had been occupied, long been occupied, and used by the Algonquin people for whom the park is named. Um, bizarrely, um, no thought was given to these indigenous peoples when creating the park. Uh, Crown Lands Commissioner Arthur Hardy stated shortly after creating the park, I am free to say that this Indian hunting did not occur to me at the time. The whole matter was under discussion. Now I see nothing for it but to exclude the Indians as well as the white men. But great care and tact will be required to handle these people so as not to embitter them or leave them feeling they have a substantial grievance. <laughs> um, Hardy's hope was both unreasonable and vain. The Algonquin land claim, still unresolved, is the largest and most complex in the province. Although Gunn had some Aboriginal ancestry himself, his great-great-grandfather George Moffat had married an Indigenous woman, unnamed in ex extant records, and he attributed some of his quietude and listening skills to this heritage, there is little evidence that Gunn was an activist for Indigenous rights in this place and period. As director of the Federation of Ontario Naturalists, he led efforts to educate the public on aspects of nature study. His 1955 book for children, Playground Activities, Nature Study, which encourages children to listen with all their might in an activity called nature music, pays heed to the history of the land and the landscape-changing nature of, of white settlers, but makes no mention of First Nations. Um, were you going to Yeah, well, just to say, to for the rest of the talk, we want to reflect on his field practice. And the field practices 
we want to really flag are those of listening, of recording, and of composing, and how they connect. They right. may connect. <coughs> and, and I think that the idea of composing connects with this uh, page from the children's book, where he actually encourages children to 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 think of nature as a real-life play with a continuous performance taking place on numerous stages, and uh, the idea of, 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 of a cast and a set, um, which I'm, I've actually sort of I've adopted the, um, the idea of the cast and uh, the, the, the props and, and uh, cast of characters in, in, the, in the taking apart and remodeling of the Day in Algonquin Park album uh, in the version that you'll hear tonight. So we can imagine one of his exercises. We don't have time to do it, really, right now. I mean, although it only takes a couple minutes. But just imagine what he would do would gather children together and get them to sit perfectly still, and then ask them to listen with all their might. And for two minutes, um, you write down all the sounds you hear. And the person with the longest list wins. <laughs> So just the thinking about the different aspects of this exercise, they're sitting perfectly still, there's fixed attention, you must be uninterrupted, there's no talking, you know, um, and also to have this competitive and acquisitive form of listening. And that what is something, something you, one can contrast with, and there are other forms of listening where, say, listening is witnessing, which is more like, what happened here? Uh, what's missing? Who am I with? Uh, who benefits? For whom? For what are we accountable? One can also just think about the social aspects of listening and in Gunn's family life. Um, there was a sense, there was a lot of, of negatives to Bill being so obsessed, obsessed with, with, with listening, with sound, with, recording. with yeah. going into the field, with the children needing to be quiet. Okay, how are you recorded? Right. Okay, so um, here's a photo. We've Lucy Gunn, Bill's widow, is still alive, and she's her 92nd birthday is actually next week, and we're going to visit her on her birthday. Luckily enough, anyway, she here she was uh, showing us some of Bill's uh, parabolic reflectors, and the parabolic reflector was a big part of Gunn's recording practice and it became a big part of a lot of other people's recording practice. So you can connect it with military history, you know, the whole idea of the parabola as a intelligence gathering device uh, is something to remember. Gunn visited uh, Cornell, I've already mentioned the ornithology department there, He's, he spent time there where they were already working with parabolic reflectors, but um, he refined the idea, refined the concept, refined the, the measurements, um, as far as we know, he was responsible for, you know, coming up with a, a better design, and then he he had lots of them fabricated from companies in uh, um, in Toronto. The first tape recorder that he acquired was given to him by his father, and it was given to him as a as a possible method for improving his diction. He had a speech impediment, so you can you know you remember the. The story of King George VI uh, is told in the, the film uh, The King's Speech, kind of a similar idea, like to be able to listen to himself and correct his tendency to mumble. 
here's this photo, which we've shown a bunch of times now, is gone with his uh, Studebaker. And you can see the uh, equipment in the trunk of the car. And he's up there with the parabola in front. And this really, you know, this idea of the, the parabola isolating birds sort of positions Gunn as a collector in, the, in a sort of European tradition, right? You could connect that with people like Ludwig Koch, who were interested in recording isolated specimens of birdsong uh, out of their, taken out of their natural habitat to get as clean as possible a recording of the voice of the subject bird. Um, so very specimen focused, and you know, going back to that idea of being a, a sort of acquisitive, um, the acquisitive aspect. Um, there's something in there to be explored, and so uh, what else? We, we could talk about where Gunn recorded. So we we saw the map of Algonquin Park, and you know that the uh, Highway 60 goes like a ribbon through the the bottom part of the park, and. Really, that was his access to Algonquin Park. He wasn't taking this heavy tube electronics you know, equipment in a canoe, for instance, going out for days into the, uh, into the wilderness. No, he was driving along the highway and finding points that were easily accessed by a car, very public spaces, for instance, places like the dump at Killarney Lodge. He recorded uh, some wonderful sounds at the dump, and when you hear them, you might think, oh, it's this you know, bird, bird song that's been recorded. What was it? It was the um, whippoorwill. Whippoorwill. A wonderful whippoorwill recording. But it was recorded in the presence of many other people at the dump. It's like, but and a couple of bears. And, bear, and, and bears uh, as well. So that Highway 60 was very important for his access. The bird songs on the album are now iconic Canadian sounds. Uh, White-throated sparrow, the common loon, those two birds bracket the uh, the album. It begin, begins with, it opens with the white-throated sparrow. It concludes with the uh, the common loon. Uh, both those birds were incidentally nominated for uh, Canadian Geographic's uh, National Bird Competition, which we were talking about yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yesterday. But they lost out to the Canada Jay. So uh, anyway, uh, Gunn had many challenges with this uh, e equipment being you know big and heavy, not so portable. <laughs> Uh, he described, in one case, the challenge of recording his dramatic loon calls at Lake Sasajuan um, with this uh, tube circuitry. Um, the common loon close-ups were among the very first recordings I ever made with my first really good studio quality tape recorder. The loons put on their noisy displays once or twice in a 24-hour period, but it was difficult to predict just when. I was able to obtain current for my tape recorder from the research station but the machine took a minute or so to warm up, and I went through a long, frustrating period in which I sometimes just managed to catch part of the end of their display. Finally, I solved the problem by keeping the machine warmed up through the night and by sleeping out of doors alongside it. This eventually brought the desired results. So, back to Gunn as a composer. How did he compose, and why would he deserve recognition as a composer? Well, Research into the making of this album, we've come across lots of interesting material to do with the, the composition, the constructive nature of the album. We can tell you that the, each, that, that the album is composed in two layers, two monophonic layers. So the gun was recording in mono uh, the whole time, of course. Um, and the two layers, so two layers of tape for each side of the album that were mixed together, 
compositionally. So you're seeing uh, an example of the score for one layer, one one layer of one of side A, um, and you can see you know a fairly uh, careful arrangement of material to the extent that the each of the each of the songs of the uh, different birds is notated along the timeline. Um, and there's fade outs, fade ins notated. Um, the numbers relate to uh, source tapes, the numbers uh, underneath the timeline and above the, the names of the birds. Uh, so this is organizing sounds, framing specific sounds, removing unwanted sounds. And for instance, uh, when we dug into the Macaulay Library and found the white-throated sparrow recordings, which were used uh, in the, for the first section. You can see it begins with tape 13, then there's two tape 20, two tape 14, then some 13s, and back to 14. So he's really juggling the available materials to construct a naturalistic flow. Uh, and he was an expert. And, you know, he was a bird, bird expert. Um, but this is still an entirely fictional construction and not all the sounds on the album were recorded in Algonquin Park. There are some sounds that were recorded as far away as Manitoulin Island. Um, so it's it's very much you know a constructed nature from recordings of individual species over a huge geographical area, and it privileges the non-human. The human presence is only uh, in the uh, in a canoe section that uh, is described on the back. This is kind of a wonderful bit of romanticism. Um, side two in the evening. Beside a log at the water's edge, where our canoe waits invitingly, a toad begins a series of long, wavering trills. As the paddle bites into the water and the canoe moves out from shore, we leave the toad and come next within hearing of an assembly of bullfrogs. You know, so it's this uh, very romantic and very settler, you know, you could say, in image of entering the canoe, which of course is another iconic Canadian uh, uh, symbol of Canada itself at this point. Also absent from the album are indigenous sounds. There's no, uh, no reference to those, and it's not surprising the park was off limits to um, indigenous, uh, traditional indigenous usage. Uh, but you could contrast this with the Venezuelan album, which does actually have uh, ethnographic type recording included as part of uh, the soundscape. Um, so we're reaching a conclusion here. As of 1981, a Dana Bonkun Park had sold over 35,000 copies and was one of the best selling bird song LPs in North America. Currently, it's not in print. Uh, because of its widespread sales. However, used copies, usually, usually quite well worn, may be readily found in thrift stores across Ontario and through eBay. Yes, uh, I actually found a sealed copy in a Kingston, a famous Kingston record store, Brian's Record Option. Shout out to Brian. Actually, the treatment that you'll hear tonight is based on a first play of the sealed copy of the album. So you're going to be hearing a treatment of a vinyl Playback. Okay, to sum up quickly, two key arguments we wanted to make. The first is this argument for recognizing Bill Gunn as a soundscape composer. 
though he did not seek to achieve recognition as such. Um, we think this is substantiated by the evidence of the complex work which went into its field recording, its scoring, the technical understanding of studio practice which Gunn exhibited in processing and mixing his recordings, and finally, the language he employed in presenting it to the public. So in comparison to many contempt uh, contemporaneous composers of music concrete or other electronic music incorporating real-world world sounds, Gunn's approach was populist and entrepreneurial. And in a day in Algonquin Park, um, it, re it reached this album reached a relatively vast audience without any burden of first having to convince people that it was music. Nevertheless, his musical handling of environmental sound did not aim to pander to a popular audience and the album foreshadows approaches and concerns determined decades later by theorists of soundscape composition and acoustic ecology. While focusing on Gunn's field practices, we're reminded how ecological and sonic practices are also cultural practices and can combine to reinforce the political erasures of humans and compound the effects of settler colonialism, however inadvertently. A day in Algonquin Park, then, needs also to be thought of as an ar artifact of a particular settler colonial cultural perception. And while we can appreciate Gunn's technical and aesthetic achievements, we must also give it a very careful and critical listening. You've been listening to Making Waves, and we've been tuning into a lecture by Matthew Rogelski and Laura Cameron, done at the Nason North Media Arts Centre in South River, Ontario, Canada. And uh, there we've been talking about the work of W.H. Gunn. Next, uh, we're going to turn to a, uh, well, a very recent soundscape recording, which was made, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning of the program, at Warbler's Roost. And uh, it's uh, 22 kilometers from South River, just like Algonquin Park, but from the in the other direction, west. And uh, it was made uh, in a 24-hour period last Friday, May 5th, um, just um, prior to the Sound Camp Don Chorus recordings. Um, we made this recording because we wanted to capture the Don Chorus before uh, uh, the weekend of rain that uh, everyone uh, experienced in uh, most parts of the eastern part of North America. Uh, although the rain did make an appearance in this recording, but not till uh, near the end. And uh, in this recording we've condensed time considerably. Um, we've taken little excerpts from different hours of the day to take us from 4 a.m. Uh, and then till about 9 or 10 in the evening. So. This is uh, some sounds from uh, South River, Ontario. South River is uh, about a three and a half hour drive north of Toronto, just to give you a sense of perhaps where that might be. Okay, well, thank you for listening. This is Making Waves, and uh, this recording will take us out to the end of the show. <laughs>